0: on in our series in Hebrews and uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, if you do have a copy of the church Bibles, uh, that is page 1206. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 8 and starting in verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their Hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is God's word.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, can I add my welcome to Michael's? It's great to see so many of you out with us this morning, and a special warm welcome if you're a guest here. Uh, I see a few unfamiliar faces, so thank you for joining us. It's, it's a joy to have you. Um, what we do here on a Sunday morning is we usually, our bread and butter is to take a book of the Bible and to work slowly through it. Uh, that's, go- that's a great joy. But it's also a great challenge because often uh, some of the books of the Bible have very difficult passages in them, uh, and this is one of them, I think. So we're gonna need to get our thinking caps on this morning uh, and pray for God's help uh, as we work through this passage. So let me pray for us again, if you'll indulge me, uh, as I ask for God's help for for you uh, and for me. Father, we thank you that all Scripture Is breathed out by you. Uh, It is useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for everything. So, Father, we thank you that the Bible is all your word and it's all we need. And so I pray, please, that you would help me now as I speak, help me to be clear. Father, help us all as we listen, help us to have, uh, after a busy week, minds that are able to understand, hearts that are soft and responsive to your word, and we pray that we might be strengthened to go out from here to obey you. So we ask for your help and blessing now, in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if any of you have ever seen the BBC TV show Fake or Fortune? Fake or Fortune, anyone ever caught an episode of that? It's hosted by Fiona Bruce from Question Time uh, and Philip Mould. Um, it's essentially it's essentially a, an upmarket posh antiques roadshow. That's really what it is. Um, and so what happens is that art collectors will submit works of art uh, or paintings in their collection to be assessed by experts Um, and uh, they'll be scrutinized, they'll look at all the details and then they'll either tell the the collector it's genuine and it's worth millions or it's a reproduction, it's a fake uh, and it's worth pennies. So a bit like the Antiques Roadshow but the stakes are much higher, okay? And this show hit the headlines uh, a few years ago Uh, because of one man, his name was Martin Lang. And Martin Lang was along, uh, he was attending an art auction, uh, and a piece of art by a French-Russian artist called Marc Chagall sold for 10 million pounds at that auction. And so when he was at another auction, and a Marc Chagall painting was on sale for 100,000 pounds, He thought, as you do, bargain. Uh, I'll buy that. And so he bought it. And now he submitted this piece of art to be scrutinized by the experts on fake or fortune. Uh, They looked at it in all the details. And they said, hmm, we're not sure. If it's a copy, it's a brilliant copy. But there's a couple of little details that we're not sure about. So what they did was they sent the the painting off to the Chagall committee in Paris, where Marc Chagall did most of his work. And they assessed the painting, and they declared it to be a reproduction, a reproduction, a fake, but here's the sting, here's the sting. Under French law, if a painting is declared to be a fake, it must be burned as soon as possible in front of a French magistrate. And sure enough, this 100,000 pound painting was taken down the road and burned in front of a local magistrate. Now that stings, doesn't it? That stings. That is a, that's, a, that's a costly mistake that Martin Lang made. He invested in what turned out to be a fake And it ended up being completely worthless. Well, that gives you a flavor of what is going on in the book of Hebrews. This writer, this author is writing to these original readers. And he's pleading with them not to make the same mistake as Martin Lang. Do not invest your time and your hope in a religion, chapter 8, verse 5, that is a copy, a shadow Of what is in heaven. Don't invest in the copy when you could miss out on the real thing that is of infinite value. Now, what's going on here? If you have not been with us in our studies in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author is writing to a bunch of uh, Christians who are from a Jewish background. uh, And it seems, reading between the lines, that they're wobbling. In their faith, they're tempted to go back to Judaism. Why would they do that? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it seems that this little community of Christians are experiencing a really tough time. Uh, Chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, makes it really clear that some in this Christian community uh, have lost their homes, have lost their possessions, have even lost their freedom because of their commitment to Jesus. It's really difficult. And so some are wobbling and considering going back to what would be easier, uh, a life in Judaism. And while that might not be our particular temptation, uh, I think the fact that it's becoming a bit more difficult to be a Christian. um, And the temptation to just blend in with our society is a very real temptation for us. And so I think what the the writer of Hebrews has to say is incredibly relevant for us This morning, but it seems that some were being tempted to go back to Judaism reading between the lines for another reason, and that is because they were attracted to the pomp and the ceremony of Judaism. Now, when the when Jews gathered to worship, they assembled at the temple in Jerusalem, a holy place, and it was a magnificent building, a magnificent building. And when they went there, they were served by holy men men dressed in elaborate robes, who performed um, complicated rituals, uh, and they were uh, surrounded by the waft and the smell of incense. If you were to go and worship uh, in the temple in Jerusalem as a Jew, it was a visual, tangible, very impressive experience. But it was very different for Christians. The original followers of Jesus, the apostles, taught that actually Christians didn't need to go to a holy place. They didn't need special mediators. They could approach God anywhere, worship God anywhere. And so these Christians were gathering in one another's living rooms. They were opening up a book and someone was explaining a passage and they'd sing a couple of hymns and they'd pray a few prayers, spend some time together and go home. By contrast, it was a very unimpressive experience. And so some were clearly tempted to go back, to go back to Judaism. Christianity had no fancy buildings. Uh, It had no sacrifices, no ceremonies. It was all very underwhelming. But at the end of chapter six, the writer gives a brilliant, and we didn't spend too much time on it, but at the end of chapter 6, the writer gives a brilliant illustration. He compares Jesus to an anchor, to an anchor. And the point is very simple. An anchor is of best use to you when you cannot see it. If an anchor is lying on the deck of a boat, it's no use to you. It's only any use when you cannot see it. And the same is true for the Lord Jesus He is working for you when you cannot see him. And so the big argument of this whole letter is stick with Jesus. He is the only one that can offer you the real thing. Don't go back to the copy. And he gives two more reasons for that in this chapter. Two reasons why you should stick with Jesus and not go back to the copy. The first reason is very simple as this. He is a superior minister and he gives us access to a better sanctuary. A few years ago, Ruth and I were toying, uh, well, we'd actually decided, in fact, to switch our internet supplier. I'm sure many of you have done that. Um, On paper, it looked like a brilliant idea. Uh, One company was offering a stronger signal. They were offering a cheaper price. And so we decided to make the move, make the switch. Uh, The equipment came in the post. Uh, Once we wired it all up, hooked it all up, didn't work properly. And then we discovered that actually there were some hidden costs in in cancelling your previous account. And so we really investigated the cancellation period. We toyed really with going back to our previous supplier. And that's the situation uh, these first readers are in they've converted to Christianity, but it's been a very unimpressive experience. There've been some unexpected costs. And so now they're seriously considering going back to Judaism. And in this first little section, the writer is saying, I want, you to, be, I want to be absolutely clear. Judaism and Christianity, he didn't use these terms, but this is the point he's making. Judaism and Christianity are not the equivalent of BT and Virgin Media, okay? They're not just two providers of the same service, and it's up to you which one you choose. He's saying Christianity and Judaism are radically different, radically different. In verses one to six he says, with one you have earthly rituals instituted by Moses, compared to heavenly realities offered by the lord jesus you'll see from chapter 8 verse 1 that we are right in the middle of a long argument now the main point of what we are saying is this see it's always good when a preacher says something like that isn't it so uh, you've homed out you haven't really been paid attention you've been thinking about what's for lunch uh, or what's going to be happening tomorrow morning well look forget about all that here's the big point that i'm trying to communicate what is it? Well, he gives then a brilliant summary of the previous chapter. We have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? Well, Michael unpacked chapter seven for us last week. And very simply in the previous chapter, the writer has been telling his readers and us that Jesus is superior to every Jewish high priest that's come before him. He is superior because he is the pure and the perfect high priest So in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, he says this, Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. I was out for a meal with a few friends recently, went to pay, And the waiter said, it's already been paid for. Someone's covered it for you. The good news of Christianity is when we come to God and we confess our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus, he says, the Lord Jesus has paid for it all for you. It's all been covered. That's really what that word atonement means, to cover over. Your sin has been covered over, fully paid for. Jesus is also, he's our pure and perfect high priest. He's also our permanent high priest. Chapter seven, verse 25, Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is greater than everyone that's come before. He can deal with all your past mistakes. He can help with all your present problems. He's all you need. He's all you need. And now he goes on in this chapter, he goes on to say, you can, the fact that Jesus is superior to everyone that's come before, every priest that's come before, can be seen by the fact that he works in a better place and can be seen in what he's doing now. First, the fact that he is superior can be seen in where he serves. He serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Jesus doesn't work in a tent Or in a building in Jerusalem. He works in the throne room of heaven. That's where he works. Second, we can see that Jesus is superior because of what he's doing. What he's doing. Uh, In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle and later the temple were, were set up, we're given lots of information about the furniture that was in the temple. There were tables and there were lampstands and there were altars. But one piece of furniture is notable by its absence, and that is chairs. There were no chairs in the tabernacle, in the temple. Because priests never had the opportunity to sit down. Their work was never done. There were always more sacrifices to be offered. Our high priest, by contrast, he can put his feet up. He can take a load off. Why? Because his work is completed. He offered a sacrifice, as we'll see in chapter 10, a sacrifice that is so great, that is so perfect, that is so expensive, it can, cover for, it can cover all our sin. His work is done. So you see, Jesus offers us the real thing, and everything else was just a copy. The writing goes on, priests who offered the gifts prescribed by the law, they serve at a sanctuary, that is a copy and shadow of what, is to come, or of what is in heaven. Verse five. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant. Ever been to one of those restaurants when, when you get the menu, there are pictures of the food on the menu. Get that? Maybe that's just the kind of restaurant I go to when on holiday, but uh, there are pictures of the food. Well, those pictures give you an idea of the reality. They are not the reality themselves. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty obvious. You know, there's no no point in just salivating over the pictures or holding on to the menu there. That's not going to help you. That's not going to fill you up. You need to go on and order the food. In the same way, the writer is saying that all that happened in the Old Testament, it was a picture, a signpost to something bigger and greater that was to come. And in verse five, he goes on to say that, look, I'm just not, I'm not making this up. I'm, this, this right in the Old Testament, you were told this. You were told that this was only a picture and a shadow in the Old Testament. And so he goes on to quote uh, from the book of Exodus, where he says, Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now the writer assumes He assumes they know their history um, of of their people. He assumes that he knows that their ancestors were pried from the grip uh, of their Egyptian slave masters about 1,400 years earlier uh, and rescued when God sent 10 disasters on the land. Uh, He assumes that they know they were led out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses through the Red Sea and guided to Mount Sinai where on Mount Sinai God spoke to the people and he gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them the Torah, the instruction, uh, and he went on to give them plans for a tent that would be built called the tabernacle. It's just a tent. And it had to be built precisely the way God described because it was a scale model of something greater. And it was designed to teach three lessons for the people three crucial lessons. Number one, this tent was to be placed in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the camp. The first lesson simply is that God desires an intimate relationship with his people. That's the first thing they needed to understand. The second thing they needed to understand was when the tabernacle was built, there was a whole series of barriers keeping people out And so if you weren't a Jew, you weren't even allowed in the courtyard of the tent. Um, Only priests were allowed to go into the tent itself. But of course, the greatest barrier of all was a thick curtain that that separated the, the, the main chamber from a little room at the back in which was kept a golden box. And inside the golden box were these tablets of stone in which the Ten Commandments were written. And that room, that it was called the Holy of Holies, was said to be the place where God dwelt in a special way. And in that room, only one man was allowed in once a year, the high priest. And all of these barriers were designed to teach the people that an average Joseph uh, couldn't just wander, waltz into God's presence much less breeze into the holy of holies. No, it's for a sinful person to approach a holy God is as dangerous as you or me going into an active radioactive nuclear reactor without a a protective suit. Deadly. We are sinful, flawed. We cannot come to a holy God. And yet the third crucial lesson was that God made a way, a way for us to be brought together. He provided a priest who would offer a sacrifice to make atonement, to cover over our sin. And these were three lessons that people were to understand that would prepare them, would prepare us for the greater reality that was to come all these religious systems all these priests and offerings and sacrifices they were all just a signpost to the greater reality that was to come and he's saying you've got that now you've got that now you have the ultimate high priest who serves in the ultimate sanctuary who offered the ultimate sacrifice why on earth would you go back to anything else why would you do it that is isn't that's as insane as the mother of a newborn baby, setting down her little baby and going back to nurse a dolly. Crazy, you wouldn't do that when you have the reality. In the same way, stick with Jesus. Now, I appreciate as I unpack that and explain that. For many of you, that's old hat. You've heard all of that before lots of different times. And you say, okay, got it. But the writer is insistent and he's really clear that you just get the pastoral, spiritual implications of this idea. So much so that he begins in chapter four and ends the section in chapter 10 stressing the implications of all of this. Let's look at these words again at the beginning of the whole section. He says this, we get this idea that Jesus is our real high priest. Chapter four, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And he's going to bang this drum all the way through the book. He says, do you get, do you get it, the mind-blowing privilege that you have? That when you pray, when you pray, your words do not just bounce off the ceiling. When you pray, your words don't just evaporate into the air. When you pray, you are escorted by the Lord Jesus into the very throne room of heaven, so that the creator God listens to you. So that when you confess your sin, you will find mercy. So that when you come to him for help, you will indeed find help in your time of need and time of trouble. I just want just to pause just for one second, just to take in that privilege that you have, if you're a Christian, that you have access to the very throne room of heaven because of the Lord Jesus. He is a superior minister who gives us access to a better sanctuary. Second reason: we have a superior covenant. Because we've been given better promises. Now the author was on in verse 6. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that is the priests that have gone before, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now I appreciate that the word covenant is not a word that we use very often in our common day parlance, um, It's a technical Bible idea, and the covenant really is an idea of an agreement between two parties, but it's more intimate than just a contract. You can have a contract with someone you don't know, and potentially someone you don't even like. It's possible to have a contract. We're talking about something more relational here. And a covenant is is also more legally binding than just an arrangement between two friends. In fact, the best example uh, of a covenant is a marriage, a marriage. On the 14th of April, 2003, Ruth and I were married 20 years ago this April. Makes me feel really old to say that, to be honest. Well, we gathered, surrounded by friends and family, and we exchanged some legally binding promises. We promised to share everything we had with each other, which was very easy, because we didn't really have anything. Uh, We promised to love and cherish each other and be faithful to one another as long as we both shall live. That was our promise. It was relational and it was legally binding. When the Bible speaks of the word covenant, more often than not, it's speaking of the covenant that God made with his people, mediated by Moses at Mount Sinai. And so we read this in Exodus 19. The words will be on your screen. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasure possession Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then later on in verse 8, the people responded together saying, We will do everything the Lord has said. In many ways, that's a marriage ceremony where there's an exchanging of binding promises between two parties. God promises that he will be their God and they will be his special people. And they promise that they will forsake all others and be faithful only to him as long as they shall live. That's that's the promise. In many ways, it's a marriage. It resembles a marriage, a covenant. But of course, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, the theme of Israel's unfaithfulness runs right through it like the words through a stick of rock. They were unfaithful to him. They broke their vows. They broke the terms of the covenant Uh, until you get um, to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, And by the time Jeremiah appears on the scene, the covenant is in shatters. It's in tatters. And yet Jeremiah predicts that one day God will make a new covenant with his people. And the words of Jeremiah are quoted in our passage from verse 8 right through to verse 12. Now what was the problem with the Old Covenant? The problem wasn't in the terms of the deal. The problem certainly wasn't on God's, God's side. He was completely faithful in every way. The problem was, verse 5, uh, sorry, uh, the problem was that God found um, fault with the people. God found fault with the people. They did not keep their side of the bargain, verse eight. And so how is this new covenant going to be any better? Is God going to lower the standard, make the, the entrance exam a bit easier? Is that why this covenant will be better and it will last? Well, no. Look through verses eight to 12 and see if you can spot anything that the people need to do. Because there isn't anything. In fact, quite the opposite. Again and again. In verse 8, three times in verse 10, in verse 12, we are told, I will, I will, I will, I will. The old covenant was a a two-sided arrangement. This new covenant will be a one-sided affair. Will not depend on the human uh, partner in the covenant at all. God is going to do everything. And therefore, this covenant is going to succeed because it's based on better promises. And what are the promises of this new covenant, this new arrangement? Well, there's three things very briefly. Our time is gone, but we'll race through these as quickly as possible. God promises three things to you and to me if you have allowed Jesus to be your high priest. If you have put your trust in him, here are three mind-blowing promises that are yours. Number one, internal transformation. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. God speak, or the writer here is speaking not primarily of memorization, that Christians will be better at learning memory verses than anybody else. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that when you come to the Lord Jesus, God is going to do some heart surgery. He'll do some heart surgery with you. If you uh, open almost any drawer uh, or look under the sofas in our house, it is very possible, it's very possible you will find a lump of Play-Doh. That is a very real possibility. Uh, And it's very possible it's been sitting there for a while, Um, And so what once used to be you could mold it into a little car or a little house or a dinosaur or a little human figure, Uh, now is hard as a a stone. And yet, if you take the time and you're patient enough, you could maybe sprinkle a little bit of water on it and work it in your hands. And it is possible that you could make it soft again. That's really what has been talked about here is that God, when we become Christians, when we ask Jesus to be our high priest, that he does that work, that heart softening work with our hearts. When once they were hard and his law just sort of bounced off it, now our hearts will be soft. We will find ourselves over time reading the Bible, reading God's commandments, reading some of the the wisdom literature, And we'll find ourselves thinking, yeah, brilliant. I want to live that way. I want to be like that. John Piper puts it really well, I think, where he says in the New Covenant, the law will no longer be a demand from the outside, but a desire from the inside. That's exactly what the writer's getting at here. God is going to so transform our hearts that we will want to obey God. He'll give us this new desire. And he'll give us the power to obey him. Now not that we'll do it perfectly. This is going to be a slow process. Painfully slow for some of us. It's going to be a slow process. But once someone becomes a Christian. The Holy Spirit begins that hard work. And change will be slow. But real. Over time. And one day, in the new age, that work will be finally completed. God promises internal transformation. And I think there's a longing in all of us to become the people we want to be, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. I think there's that longing for change and growth and development in us all. And here, here we go, here's how to get it. Here's the promise. Come to him. Second promise is personal knowledge. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach uh, their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to, least of them to the greatest. Personal knowledge, personal knowledge. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold on a minute, does that leave Lee in a slightly tricky spot here? Uh, no more teachers necessary. Uh, should we give him his, his P45 and say, thanks, thanks, all best now, take it easy? Um, well, I don't think that's what he's saying here. Um, throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's really clear teachers are needed and necessary uh, to open up God's word, explain it in a way that comforts and challenges and spurs on God's people. But what the writer's getting at here is there will be no more need or special mediators, special mediators. You see, if you were um, a Jewish believer in the Old Testament, at best you had an indirect relationship with God. You didn't really have a personal God, you more had a national God. You needed prophets and priests and kings. They would meet with God personally, and then they would come to you and they would give you God's word, and God's command. You couldn't go into the temple. God didn't speak directly to everybody. In the old covenant, uh, our relationship with God was indirect. But with the new covenant, that all changes. That all changes. We who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus as our high priest, we can know God directly, directly. Every believer can come to God in prayer directly. Every believer can call out to him as our father. Each of us can open up the Bible. We can read it, be thrilled by the promises, be challenged by the rebukes, be prompted by the Holy Spirit, and genuinely say, God spoke to me. You can say that. You can genuinely say, God knows me. He hears my prayers. He is committed to me. We all have a direct relationship with God. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And this is a privilege that is open to absolutely everybody. I wonder who springs into your mind when you think the least. Who are the least perhaps the poor, perhaps the homeless or the disabled or the elderly or the very young. All of them have equal footing, equal access to a relationship, a personal relationship with God. It doesn't depend on your intellectual ability or the strength of your moral resolve, your performance. No, this is a a relationship that is opened up for everybody. And in a society that is more fractured and divided than ever before, we have a radical equality here. This, is, this relationship is open to everyone. No one is excluded. And that means that Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. In every other religion in the world, religion produces superiority. Superiority and separation as adherence to that religion think we have better rules we have better behavior we have a better god and so they look down their noses at everyone who doesn't share their views that's true in secular atheism as well it's hard to miss it when you read someone like Richard Dawkins as he looks down his self-righteous nose at every um, believer And views them as a fool and a bigot. A Christian can never say that. A Christian can never look down their nose at anybody else. In fact, what a Christian will say or should say. Is that I am no better than you. In fact, I'm probably worse. And yet God has done something amazing for and in me. So there's no room for pride, there's no room for exclusion, there's no room for self-righteousness anymore, because this personal knowledge is available for everyone. And I think this brings a big challenge for us as we think who we should be sharing the good news of Jesus with. It's for everybody, absolutely everybody, and therefore we need to cross every barrier. Wonderful promises, internal transformational, personal knowledge, and lastly, very briefly, total forgiveness, total forgiveness. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, when the Bible speaks of God remembering, we need to be really careful because it doesn't mean that he had forgotten, that he is forgetful or struggles with being senile. That is not true. So when you read a passage like um, Genesis chapter eight, verse one, where we read that God remembered Noah, it is not that, I wonder what Noah's up to, haven't seen him around for a bit. Oh yeah, there's Noah. It's not that God had forgotten Noah. The idea is that of God remembering is that God brings to the forefront of his mind because he's now gonna act. That's what that word always means to recall in order to act. And what does he do immediately? He rescues Noah. When God remembers the people of Israel in their slavery, he then immediately acts. And so what the writer is saying here is that God will never remember our sin. He will never bring it to mind in order to act against us. It's a wonderful way of saying God will never punish us, never punish us. For our sins. We are truly. Completely. Fully. And permanently. Forgiven. Forgiven. How can God promise that? Well because of chapter 7. Because of chapter 7. He can make that radical promise. Because of chapter 7. Because the Lord Jesus has offered the ultimate sacrifice. That covers over all our sin. And failure. And shame. So that we are fully forgiven. And we'll get back to that. And that sacrifice in chapter 10. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're just acutely aware, acutely aware of your own failure. This is a wonderfully encouraging promise then for you to hear. If you've asked Jesus to be your priest and your go-between, it's covered, fully paid for. It will never be brought up in God's mind again. The old covenant was based, was a two-party arrangement and based on the obedience of the Israelites. And so it failed, it failed. The new covenant is based solely and fully on the obedience of the Lord Jesus. And so it can never fail. These promises will never be revoked. They will never be taken back. God will never change his mind. And so I suspect I'm probably speaking to some wobbling Christians in this group this morning. It's hard. It's hard. I'm tempted to pack it all in and just be like everyone else. Life would be easier. I'd have more time. I'd have more money. I'd avoid all the ridicule. It's just be easier. Don't do it. Don't do that. That would be insane. Stick with Jesus. In him, you, and him only, you have the real thing. Through him, you can know God personally in a way that will change your life now and will save you for eternity.